Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Rachel Dreskin to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Rachel is the U.S. Executive Director at Compassion and World Farming, an international organization working to improve farmed animal welfare. Its mission is to end factory farming and advance the well-being of farmed animals globally. As Executive Director, Rachel is leading Compassion USA's growing role in forging a more humane and sustainable food and farming system through measurable farmed animal welfare improvements and protein diversification. Rachel also serves as a board member of Global Animal Partnership. So thank you very much, Rachel, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you for having me, Fergal. So um, uh, can you tell me a little bit about um, what you do? And I know you're based in America and the original uh, organization was set up in the UK. Can you just talk a little bit about Compassion World Farming, uh, when it was set up and what the overall goals are? Sure. Uh, Compassion World Farming is a global farmed animal protection organization. And we are one of the few organizations that is squarely focused on farmed animal welfare. So we don't work on any other um, animal protection issues, really focus around farm animal welfare, which is um, warrants a, a huge amount of, of focus. Um, and the organization's been around for a while. We were established in the 1960s, so we celebrated our 50-year anniversary just a couple of years ago, and were established by a dairy farmer out of the UK named Peter Roberts. And Peter was becoming concerned about the direction that animal agriculture was was heading in and um, set up the organization to do something about that because he saw that animal welfare was being compromised um, in our quest to become um, so-called more efficient in our food system. And at the beginning, in the in the early decades of um, the organization and our operations, uh, we were very focused around getting legislative change um, pushed through in the UK and throughout the EU. So some of the work that the that the organization did in the early days was work to, uh, for example, get farmed animals recognized as sentient beings uh, in EU law. Uh, we also worked to get some of the worst practices in animal agriculture banned. Uh, for example, cages for laying hens, crates for for pigs. Um, but as the EU was was growing, it became more and more difficult to get legislation pushed through. So we thought, how else can we achieve large scale? measurable change in the food industry? Uh, what else can we do in addition to getting more progressive legislation pushed through? And we decided that we could also go the route of working on corporate policy and partnering with and enable, enabling large food companies uh, to create policies and uh, sourcing standards and practices for their businesses that would also have incredible uh, uh, change and impact. And the U.S. arm of the organization was founded about eight, eight years ago. And 
the focus for the program in the U.S. is really around the working collaboratively with food companies, which we call our our food business program, uh, because we see this food business work as an enormous driver of change. And we see impact from this work much, much more quickly. And it can be used as a building block for for further legislative change. Um, And when you harness this, this growing consumer interest with widespread corporate policy, um, it, it lays the groundwork for that and really works in conjunction uh, with the legislative piece. I guess uh, legislation, uh, one one can uh, is maybe a little bit easier to understand, um, and you can see the results of that over time. Can you talk a little bit about partnering with food companies? Because in many people's eyes, the food companies are at the heart of the problem. Yes, and they're... Um, on one hand, at the heart of the problem, but on, on the other hand, they also have a tremendous opportunity to do good. And when we were first setting up shop here in the U- in the U.S., uh, we really assessed the landscape and saw that there was a, a gap in the market in the NGO community um, that there we really needed to set out to not um, not make these food companies feel like they were necessarily the the problem, but they were, um, but allowing them to uh, enable them to be able to use their influence and their size to for good. Um, so we came in really with the uh, goal of understanding the, the challenges that businesses are facing, and but also, of course, being continuously guided by what is best for for the animals. Um, so the kind of work that we do with food companies, and the, and we work with you know uh, very influential food companies, multinational food companies um, like uh, Unilever and uh, Tyson, Nestle, Subway, those types of companies. Uh, but we really seek to provide them with key insight into animal welfare issues, sit down with them, help them craft policies to address these key issues, put timelines um, on on commitments to move towards better practices, connect them with the resources that they need in order to actually implement these changes, and also increasingly to help them connect the dots between animal welfare and other sustainability goals. For their for their companies as well, right, right, and I mean clearly there's tremendous momentum now uh, amongst consumers in in many dimensions of uh, uh, food, uh, be it in terms of you know organic or where the food is sourced, uh, many many dimensions, and and clearly um, uh, it's moving quite fast. To what extent, um, and, and, and presumably this is a big lever, a big driver of uh, behavior change or interest, at least from the from the large food companies. To what extent um, are they? Uh, do you find that their attitudes here and the way they look at these questions are driven by almost you know a, a yearly consumer trends? And to what extent? Are they able to look at broader trends and uh, and broader values? I guess because you know animal welfare per se is is um, may or may not be on on the uh, list of priorities of particular groups of consumers, but clearly it's a you know it's a moral ethical issue as well. Well, one thing that the consumers are really pushing for across the board is increased transparency 
from from food companies. So that's something that every, every company is well aware of that. And when consumers consumers are starting to ask companies now, we want to know what's going on in your supply chain. Uh, the days of of consumers just trusting brands to make the decisions on behalf of them and their families those those days are are in the past. Consumers want to know exactly where food comes from. They want to know. Uh, how the animals in companies' supply chain chains are, are treated. And when they find out that the majority of animals, of laying hens, the majority of, of mother pigs are still kept in confinement, still kept in cages and, and crates, uh, when they find out that uh, broiler chickens are um, being bred so that they, they grow so big so quickly they, they have some trouble supporting their own weight, that's something that is increasingly out of alignment with consumer expectations. So even though, of course, we know when, when consumers go to the grocery store, they're making purchase decisions primarily based on taste, conven- convenience, and affordability. Um, but they also are increasingly caring. They care about these issues and they want to make sure that brands are operating or or making progress towards operating um, with within the the values and the expectations that they have for them. So it's it's tremendously powerful. I do think that um, in recent years, we've seen a lot of movement um, to get animals out of out of cages uh, in the U.S. and beyond the U.S. Really, globally, we have seen a tremendous number of companies move from cage systems for laying hens to cage free. Uh, to cage-free systems. Uh, in the past few years alone, more than 200 major, major food companies have have made that commitment. And I know that that is in large part due to consumers demanding transparency and um, and sharing with, with companies that cage confinement is not something that they want to support with their dollars. Right, right. Now, factory farming, you mentioned from the beginning. What is, broadly speaking, your your definition of factory farming? And, and, and I mean, and just to give us some sense of it. And also the scale. I mean, you talked about over 50 years um, that you've been operating. And how how prevalent is factory farming and how has it been growing? So factory farming is um, a phrase that we we use a lot, and it's really to describe this um, intensive animal animal agriculture systems. And those systems are where animals are kept um, indoors in intense confinement, uh, where they do not have the opportunity to express natural behaviors. So the opposite to an intensive or factory farming um, operation would be an extensive system. And an extensive system would be would be where animals are are um, not kept in confinement. They are. Um, able to spend time on pasture, they have access to shelter, um, but are able to um, to be in a a mixed rotational grazing system um, where it contributes to not only better welfare for the animals, but um, better soil health and a variety of of other benefits. Uh, So the 
but factory farming, where the direction that we have gone in with with animal agriculture is really quite prevalent and accounts for the majority of animal agriculture now, uh, which is is quite unfortunate. And it is the without a doubt the the largest source of of cruelty um, on the planet. And uh, 95% of, of animals, just to give an idea of the scale of the problem, in the U.S., 95% of animals that are raised for food are raised in these, in what we're calling factory farms. So that accounts to more than 9 billion animals a year globally in the U.S. I'm sorry, um, in the U.S. And globally, um, there are about 70 billion land animals um, that are raised in these types of environments. And Fergal, that is not taking into account fish. Uh, so if we take fish into into the picture, the number is, is in the trillions. Right, right. It's shocking. Um, what, are, what are some of the, uh, the, the, the standards there and the labels and the ways people can identify, um, you know, that the, 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 the animals have been looked after and, and some, some standards have been kept? There are some, some meaningful higher welfare certifications uh, that people can look for. And a few that um, in the U.S. that I'll call out are Global Animal Partnership, uh, which has five different uh, levels to it, five and five plus being the most extensive um, of, of the system. So kind of that system that I was describing a moment ago where completely pasture-based rotational grazing systems, uh, animals spend their entire lives on farm. Um and um, at the at the one and two levels of the program, it is kind of more of an incremental step up um, from the the convention conventional systems. Um, other animal welfare certifications are uh, animal welfare approved, um, which is also uh, largely pasture based systems, and uh, certified humane is um, another certification to look for as as well. So those are those are certifications that look specifically at animal welfare. Um, there are some certifications that uh, are um, that are are starting that do look a little bit more broadly um, at ag agriculture practices as well. One that I will mention that is in a pilot phase right now, but is quite exciting, um, which I happen to sit on the um, board of directors for, is the regenerative organic certification. Um, so that is one to look for in the future. But that is a, um, a, a new certification that is um, is the goal is to provide solutions to some of the biggest social and ecological challenges right now, and it takes into account um, pasture-based animal welfare, um, fairness for for farmers and people working in the agriculture system, and it also has robust requirements for soil health and land management as as well. Um, so it really has three pillars of focus, animal welfare, social and and soil health. Right. Is, is organic a shorthand in some way? Does it reflect um, higher standards? Um, organic, I think, is should be looked at as a stepping stone to to higher standards. Um, it 
is a step, but it's not robust enough. Um, organic does not have, it really does not take into account animal welfare, which is something um, people oftentimes will find surprising that if you're buying an organic chicken breast in the store, um, you have the expectation that that chicken had a, a good quality of life. Um, but Certified organic animal products actually uh, can be kept in intensive um, factory farming environments. So it's it's really not meaningful um, at all from an animal welfare standpoint. It's also not robust in in the other those two other pillars as well, the social fairness and the um, the soil health piece as well. So. I, I do think there is some value to the organic certification, um, certainly for for non non livestock um, products. Um, but I do think that it's really important to um, uh, to accept that we can't stop there. Um, organic is not good enough. And one thing that the uh, regenerative organic certification is doing is seeking to help create that pathway and that roadmap to two companies and to farms that are certified organic and helping them get to the next stage, get it, get them to more of a regenerative farming system. Right. Now, what is the scale of the problem here, <laughs> Rachel? You, you talk about some of these certifications, certif- certified humane and so forth. I mean, what percentage of meat would you say on the U.S. market has got this kind of standard? In the, sing- in the single digits, uh, unfortunately, there is a very, very small percentage of um, animal products um, today in the U.S. that is being certified to one of these more meaningful uh, third-party certification programs. So that's something that uh, Compassion is seeking to, to do something about um, and advocate for the um, increased usage of these meaningful third-party certifications. Because I know from there are a lot of consumers who are um, very, very invested in this and will seek out those third-party certifications, but it's not if it's not available um, at the stores that that companies are, are, sh- are, are sorry, that consumers are shopping at or at the, the restaurant chains that people are, are eating at, um, people are fairly limited right now because of um, because it's not widely utilized. So one of the things that we're doing when we're working with companies is to not only um, encourage them to to move to higher welfare production systems like move to better breeds of chickens to give animals more space, but we're also now asking food companies, to utilize a higher welfare third-party certification to um, to, ha- to provide that assurance, one, uh, to their customers that what they say they're doing is actually happening and there's accountability throughout their supply chain, but also really to increase that that percentage of, of products um, that are certified to a, a higher welfare um certification right right is it much better in europe i know you mentioned that some of the legislation there and the treatment of animals as sentient beings and and so forth um is is it better do you have a rough sense of of how, how things are in europe the in europe in and in the uk um companies and consumers have been and 
and investors. Um, for, um, a variety of different stakeholder groups have been addressing animal welfare, farmed animal welfare, um, for um, a longer period of time. So in many ways, the UK in the EU is more advanced. Uh, some of these practices that we are working really hard to move away from in the US, um, where there's no fed- federal legislation, in existence, um, a lot of these practices are just simply not allowed um, in in EU law. Uh, but there's still a long way to go as as well. Um, there are. Um, uh, more progressive uh, corporate corporate policies, um, but the something that's very interesting that that's happening right now is, and I'm going to use a, a specific example, and the example uses um, cages for for laying hens. So of course I mentioned that um, that battery cages for laying hens are are not legal um, in the in the UK and throughout the EU. So in re- in response to this, uh, the food industry has partially moved to cage-free, uh, higher welfare systems. Um, but part of the food industry in the UK and in the EU has moved to um, what's called enriched cages, which are cages that are slightly bigger. Um, they have some types of enrichments for the animals in in them, and by enrichments, I mean things like um, nest boxes for the laying hens to lay their eggs, um, and things that they can just engage with to express some level of natural behaviors. But the animals are still kept in cages. Um, it's a slightly better cage, but it's it's still it's still a cage. And in the U.S., we um, have kind of leapfrogged over that system. So animals were kept in in. Um, conventional battery cages, instead of working to pass, um, focus on getting new legislation passed or corporate policy um, put into place that moved to a better cage, we just sought to abolish all cages altogether. Um, so, so yes, so I would say in on one hand, the, the EU and the UK are a step ahead. Um, but in some ways, the US in large part due to corporate policy are actually leapfrogging over some of these kind of intermediary um, systems that are more widely used in in the UK and and in the EU. Right, right. Um, uh, now, how big a factor is uh, economics and costs here? I mean, the the cost of food has fallen um, as a part as 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 a percentage of you know workers' pay uh, and so forth, pretty dramatically over time. And presumably, uh, some people are arguing that you know there's a trade off, and you know to keep food cheap and so forth. Can you talk about what's at stake in terms of you know what kind of how how, how companies will have different costs? associated with achieving some of these standards yes so it's really interesting when i started doing this this work in the u.s uh several years ago uh, a lot of the conversation focused around the increased cost of moving to higher welfare production systems and there is absolutely an increased cost with moving from cage-free systems uh, from cage systems to cage-free there's an increased cost with moving from um, breeds of chickens that grow extremely big extremely quickly to a breed that is more robust 
fast, but may grow a little bit less quickly. And it's very interesting, though, that with this increased um, awareness from consumers, increased demand for transparency, increased interest from the from the media, from investors, that companies are starting to think about this in a broader sense, thinking about the um, the financial and the economic challenges of converting supply chains in a broader sense. And and by that, I mean, they're starting to say, we're not just looking at what is the cost of moving from a cage system to a cage-free system, but they're starting to say, what is the cost to my business if I don't move to a cage-free system? So there is enough going on. Um, Around these food, around the food companies, that they understand now that not making this change is simply not a viable option for them and for the business moving forward. So the conversation then really becomes focused around: we know we need to we need to evolve. We need to keep up with with shifting consumer preferences. So let's just figure out how we do that. And there are some really interesting conversations going on with with food companies now around that. And it's it it's becoming a little bit more broad in the sense that we are thinking about their protein purchasing more holistically. So I'll give an example of, of the kind of conversations that we're having with with food companies without um, naming any specific companies, but while we're looking at moving, say, from um, a, a supply chain that is uh, conventional, intensive, factory-farmed meat chicken to a less less intensive um, uh, meat chicken supply chain with better breeds of chicken, more space, enrichment, those all, all of those pieces. Um, we are looking at how much of that company's supply chain is that consists of chicken right now. How much of that are we going to convert to higher welfare chicken, which of course costs more? And then how much of that are we actually going to look at taking out or replacing with with something else? Are there plant-based alternatives that can come into their protein portfolio that can help them rebalance what what their overall protein portfolio looks like, which one can help address the um, the economic challenges with moving to higher welfare supply chain, uh, but also will tap into the increasing consumer interest and awareness around plant-based foods, and also can help contribute to companies, um, to other sustainability goals that a company may have, um, like a goal around reducing carbon emissions or reducing um, land and, and water usage. 
um, in a supply chain. Absolutely. I was going to talk about plant-based foods as such a, uh, an important element in um, dealing with uh, global warming and climate breakdown is reducing um, our, our, our meat intake. And um, particularly, I guess the US is a bit of a, um, a say an outlier in terms of meat consumption. Um, interesting to, to, to hear you say that. Uh, do, do investors actually talk about things like animal welfare? <laughs> That's quite an interesting idea. Yeah, it is. So you asked about um, the UK and the EU earlier, and it is something that ESG investors in the UK and EU, ha- they are starting to ask about. It is a little bit um, a little bit more immature here in, in the US, um, to be completely honest. But um, we are seeing more and more investor interest in this in this area. And there are reports, um, there's a, a, a report that's been around for about six years now, the Compassion World Farming is a partner in, and it's a it's a, an investor focused report, which is called the Business Benchmark on Farmed Animal Welfare, that ranks the top global food companies on how well they are managing the risk associated with having animals in their supply chain. So it's interesting because yes, do, you know, investors care about animal welfare. Some some do. Um, do the majority of them care? Are they making inv- investment decisions based on j- just based on animal welfare? Hmm. Not not widely yet. But what some mainstream investors are looking at is is a company 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 appropriately managing the risk associated with having animals in their supply chain? And if they see that a company is not actively and appropriately managing that risk, they are using that then as an indicator of broader management competency or or incompetency. So it can be a really important important indicator. That's interesting. Yes, yes. Now I'd like to talk about the regenerative um, uh, agricultural, uh, I guess, trends and, and movement and so forth. Um, but but just before that, your compassion and world farming. We've talked about the U.S. Talked about Europe to some degree. What is the state of affairs in the global South? Um, I, I mean, I know in terms of context that. Um, uh, it was interesting that you talk about the movement towards a plant a plant based diet, um, but that in general there is tremendous food waste within the food system. I mean, and, and mm. in Europe it tends to be uh, consumer driven, and I guess in in the global south more to do with um, issues and supply chains and and production and so forth like that. But um, I, I'm just wondering how are things there? They have different uh, constraints. You know, very fast growing populations. Um, I guess lesser uh, meat intake per se, but then growing mm. very fast as well. Right, right. So I often get asked this question because um, we do we are advocating for um, the reduced reliance on animal protein, but it is really important to keep in mind that in in the U.S. Um, we are consuming three times more meat per capita than the global average. We're consuming four times more beef than the the global um, than the global average. And are we advocating for the same level of reduction targets across the globe? 
no, no, we, we, we certainly are not. And, um, you know, in, in some parts of the world, um, a, a lot of people are, um, are struggling with, with malnutrition. And, um, I think there's, there are a lot of things that we can do, um, to help alleviate that issue, which, which in, we do need to be cutting food waste. We need to be looking at um, uh, on producing food that gives us a, be- a better um, calorie conversion. Um, but it's important that um, we also recognize that some populations are not currently key players in the climate change game. So right now, um, just to, to um, clarify this piece, uh, our focus on on reducing meat consumption and production and diversifying protein sources is we're primarily or or initially focused on countries that are disproportionately consuming resources and and eating more meat. Um, and those are countries like the U.S., the EU, Russia, um, and increasingly countries like China and India that are eating more and and more meat. Um, but also we need to look at, as you mentioned, there are some um, really important factors in in moving towards a more sustainable food and farming system for everybody on the planet. And we need to look at at waste and reducing food waste. Um, that is a huge issue that um, is has implications for animal welfare um, as well, because such a large portion of, of the, the food and the meat that we are producing gets gets thrown away. Um, that is an area that, of course, if we seek to reduce that would have positive benefits on 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 people, the planet, animals across the board. Um, but we also need to look at what are the types of food that we are um, prioritizing using our our arable land. Four. Um, we know that animal that agriculture um, covers half of the usable land surface on the planet, and eighty um, percent of that is being used for for factory farming, and that's. That's both for the animals themselves that are being raised for their, their for their meat, milk, or eggs. That's also including the crops that are grown um, to be fed to to um, factory farmed animals. And we lose so many of the calories in that conversion process. So for every hundred calories that are fed to animals um, in the form of human edible crops. We are only getting 17 to 30 calories back in the form of meat, milk, or eggs. So the kind of layers um, of of waste that are going on in our our system globally is is quite striking, and it needs to be addressed at all of those those different points. Yes, yes. I, so much uh, ground to cover here. I just also you did mention, and I'm just wondering uh, about the the f- uh, f- fish. And uh, I mean, I've seen some uh, pretty uh, eye-boggling statistics about the, the 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 number of you know wild-caught fish that are used to feed. Uh, I guess what I call underwater factory farms and and you know, salmon uh, farms and so forth. Um, is that something in your remit? 
It is something, yes. We actually just launched a campaign called Rethink Fish, and that is looking at at just that. It has been um, an area of animal agriculture that has been um, ignored. It's been on the back burner for far too long. And Intensive fish farming is having devastating impacts on our our oceans. Um, it's having de- devastating impacts on on the animals themselves. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that the number of of fish um, that are factory farmed is we're estimating to be in the trillions, but it's hard to even get a more specific estimation than that uh, because we are. Unlike land animals, um, fish are not the um, number of fish that we are raising for human consumption or for um, fish meal for other fish is not measured by the animal, but it's instead just measured by by the ton. Um, so that is this is becoming a um, increasing becoming a big focus for um, for compassion world farming globally. Yes, yes. Now, you have a, a program uh, which sounds very interesting and you touched on a little bit, Eat Plants for a Change. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I suppose in a, in a kind of counterintuitive way or, or, you know, if we weren't eating, if we were eating a fraction of the meat or if we really were moved to a plant-based diet, a lot of these problems would disappear. Yes, that is exactly right. So the challenge is how do we how do we get there? How do we dramatically reduce um, the number of, of animals that we're raising and that we are consuming? So the exciting program uh, that we are have launched at Compassion World Farming is uh, our Friendly Food Alliance program, uh, which we're also calling Eat Plants for a Change, and we established this program. Um, really because we took a a cold, hard look at what's been happening in animal agriculture over the past 10 years. Because, uh, Fergal, there's a lot to celebrate um, in regard to to progress for farmed animals. Um, We really have been seeing uh, a level of of unprecedented shifting in in our supply chains um, over the past five years in the U.S. It's just amazing the number of companies who have been um, are moving away from intensive farming um, practices. But we also need to recognize that looking at the the last ten years, we are set to benefit the lives of a billion animals through the work that we've done. Um, with with food companies. But in that same period of time, 10 billion new animals have entered our food system. So we're set to benefit a billion, 10 billion more animals have entered the system. And that's something that, you know, for me, looking at those numbers, it was very clear that we, we can't kid ourselves that we are that we are winning, that we're making progress fast enough. Um, we certainly aren't. So it's not just enough to try to improve the lives of the animals in our food system today. We need to dramatically reduce the the overall numbers and. Um, we launched this program uh, because we know that similar to the work that we've done with food companies around welfare improvements, uh, we know we can we can leverage those partnerships and that work that we're doing to have discussions around diversifying protein sources as as well. And as we've talked about 
food businesses. I, I um, believe um, very firmly that food companies can really push us forward in this. They have enormous impact on our food system. And a change in a perspective and a purchasing policy can impact the lives of, of hundreds of millions of animals. It can, it can remove hundreds of millions of animals, um, from, from our supply chain. Uh, so that's, that's the idea behind the, the friendly food Alliance and our eat plants for a change work. That's a great campaign. And I wish you the best with that. Can you talk about regenerative farming generally? Uh, you mentioned the is it regenerative organic certification framework. What, mm-hmm. what is it? What, what is it about? It presumably stands in stark opposition to factory farming yeah. in, in many people. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll describe um, what a, a regenerative farm, what, a, what an extensive farm um, would would look like. And this may not be that different from what, from what a lot of people um, you know, think of it's it's when you think of of more traditional animal agriculture. When you see those those drawings on the outside of the of the milk containers at the stores with the animals grazing outside um, on pasture and um, pigs that are taking mud baths in the forests and cows that are able to to take dips into the ponds to cool off. Um, animals have access to shelter, but they are completely free also to exhibit all of the natural behaviors. Um, it would be a mixed grazing system that contains both both animals and crops. The soil is, is healthy and um, actually serves as a carbon sink. So it pulls carbon back into the soil. Um, the animals spend their entire lives on the farm, so they don't have to go through the process of live transport. Um, there are there's minimal waste from the farm. Um, there's um, any unused parts of the animals are used to create other products like pet products or um, will go into compost. Um, there are systems that can revitalize towns and result in higher paying jobs. And this, I know this can, um, you know, I, I run the risk of sounding um, a little bit idealistic. Um, and this, it sounds like it may be kind of an unachievable utopia, but these kinds of farms actually do exist. And the farm that I, I just, dis- I was thinking of as I, as I was describing that is a farm um, called White Oak Pastures, which is in southeastern Georgia. And this is a 3,200 acre farm that has thousands of animals on it. So this isn't just a hypothetical dream. Um, this is an example of a type of farm that does exist, that is commercially, is economically feasible. Um, And this is, uh, but I also want to note that one of the reasons why we are advocating for a dramatic reduction in the total number of animals is because that kind of farm that I described is not going to feed the world with our current diets. We simply don't have enough land or enough resources to do it. So that kind of system is part of our vision for what a more sustainable food and farming system looks like. But that is will be a niche part of the market. 
it'll never be the mainstream. And the owner of of that farm that I just described, White Oak Pastures, a uh, man named uh, Will Harris, who's really incredible. He's a um, quite a, a visionary in this in this area. Um, he has said that as well. This is a niche a niche market. So in order to feed the world, we also need to couple that that regenerative system with diversified protein production and a much heavier emphasis on plant sector on plant centric diets absolutely absolutely well um presumably um the this these uh friendly food alliance and this regenerative uh uh organic certification are um key 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 parts of your ongoing work are, are there a couple of other things that you're working on over the next couple of years yes so we have um, big focuses. So the protein diversification, working with companies on, and that is a huge part um, of our our program. And another part of that that program, which I will call out, is also really looking at um, how does this this diversified protein sourcing, how does that fit in with other. Um, other sustainability goals for a company. Um, we really need to look at um, the and, and, and understand and recognize how intersectional um, issues of animal welfare, environmentalism, public health, and social justice are, and really helping um, companies um, connect the dots between all of all of these areas um, because it, looking at we need to start moving away from compassionate farming is has over the past 50 years um, really been known as an animal welfare organization or an animal protection organization but we're moving outside of that and saying we're now animal welfare environmentalists because we know that factory farms are, um, one of the largest waterway polluters um, via manure lagoons and agricultural runoff. Um, we we know that um, that with um, increase the increasing number of um, natural disasters that um, such as the hurricanes that are that are hitting um, that we're we're being impacted by are flooding manure lagoons, um, the, that manure is then going into our soil, into our waterways. Um, there's just large amount of, of toxic runoff um, from farms outside of that that are creating dead zones in our, in our ocean. Um, we, of course, also know that 14.5% um, of global greenhouse gas, gas emissions, according to the um, UN FAO, um, are due to animal agriculture. Um, so we know that the work that we're doing to advocate for better production systems and more diversified protein sourcing impacts all of these different areas. And not only does it impact all of all of these areas, but we know that without a reduction in meat and dairy consumption um, by 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 2050 in the next in the next 30 years or so, we our diets alone are going to push us over the Paris Agreement's targets, um, thereby sparking 
catastrophic climate change. So it's really important for us as an organization to continue really connecting the dots between all of these all of these pieces, both in our our messaging, the way we're talking about these issues, um, but also very practically with how we're working with with the food industry. So understanding that, you know, as we're working with some of these large companies on diversifying our protein sources, we know that we can connect these reduction targets, the number of animal reduction targets with other targets, such as um, uh, targets to reduce the number of of greenhouse gas emissions. And companies are really stepping up um, when it comes to those kinds of um, sustainability targets. Um, For example, Unilever has a goal to have their environmental footprint footprint by 2030. Uh, Tyson just last week in their new sustainability report uh, announced a goal to um, reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by 30% by, um, by, by 2030. So a big part of our, of our program and our work moving forward is to really work to join up all of, all of these issues um, to, to move us meaningfully more towards a, a a more sustainable food and farming system and more ethical system. Well, that's a fantastic vision, Rachel, um, and uh, a, a number of uh, very big challenges and it's a, a, a big work workload. And I wish you the very best of success with that. And thank you so much for talking to Sustainability Agenda today. Thank you so much for having me, Fergal. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.